Well, good morning. It's so good seeing all of you guys on this rainy day. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and let's turn to Daniel uh, chapter 10, and then let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that you have made yourself known to us through your word. That not only are you glorious and powerful, all-knowing, almighty, but you are also personal. You make yourself known to us. You relate to us as our Father, and we are your children. And it is not anything we have done to deserve it, but rather you have initiated that through your son, Jesus, that died for us. And Lord, we come to you confessing our sins. We come to you recognizing our desperate need for you, not just to save us, but also to to endure, to know you, to walk with you. And so, Lord, in this time, can you just make yourself known to us? Can you speak to us? Can you open up our eyes? Can you open up our ears? Can you open up our mind and our hearts? Lord, can you meet us where we are in life? Can you convict us? Can you encourage us? Can you strengthen us? Can you help us to look to you, regardless of what's going on in our lives? As we see the rage of the nations, can you help us to fix our eyes on you and be in awe of you? And Lord, for those that are here right now that have not trusted you, that does not know you, that have not placed their faith in you, that have not received the gift that you've given them, Lord, can you help them to believe, to trust you, to surrender their life to you? Lord, can they feel the weight of their sins? Can they recognize their desperate need for you? Oh, Lord, how we long for people to surrender their life to you and to respond to this glorious, beautiful gospel that you've given us. So come, Lord, and speak and move among us. Holy Spirit, just come and fill this place as your children gather. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, as we're continuing our series through the book of Daniel. So we're coming to the last section of Daniel. Um, It's important as we get to chapter 10, it's important for us to understand that chapter 10 all the way through chapter 12 should be handled as one single unit. Because in chapter 10, what we're going to see is we're going to see a heavenly figure that appears. In chapter 11, we're going to receive the word that the heavenly figure gives to Daniel about the future. And then in chapter 12, the heavenly figure gives Daniel instruction and also hope. 
And so as we get to chapter 10, we're really going to see the spiritual curtain being pulled back and it gives us a brief glimpse of the spiritual warfare that is going on, even though our physical eyes cannot see it. And again, like in chapter 9, there are certain things that we can clearly understand and there are certain things we cannot understand. And so there are certain things that we can hold firmly and there are certain things that we, in a sense, can hold loosely. And so let's try to figure out this text together and what does it teach us about God and what are some personal applications that we can get from the text. So let's look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says this, In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who was named Balthazar. The message was true and it was about a great conflict. He understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three full weeks. I didn't eat any rich food, no meat or wine entered my mouth, and I didn't put any oil on my body until the three weeks were over. So let's just stop here and let's see what's going on. Notice in verse 1, Daniel is talking in the third person, and then in verse 2, he's going to the first person. So you're like, well, that's kind of weird. Well, what's going on? I think what Daniel is doing in the first verse is trying to give us a summary of what's going on and then start to unpack the meaning of the summary. So in verse one, he kind of tells us, he gives us an historical marker. He said it's in the third year of King Cyrus. And if we kind of put some of those dates together, the date is approximately 536 BC. So it's about two years after the vision he had in verse in chapter 9. And in verse 1, we, he gives us the historical marker, and then he also tells us that Daniel received a message. He received a word. And in verse 1, we find out that this word was initiated by the Lord. This word was true, or a better way of looking at it, this word was reliable. And this word concerned this great conflict, this great war that is going to take place. And this word was understood by Daniel. So that's kind of the summary. And so our immediate attention is like, ooh, what is this word? We'll get to it next week. But let's start unpacking. One of the first questions we might want to ask ourselves as we get into the story is like, okay, like what did Daniel do to receive the word? And Daniel tells us in verse 2, Daniel tells us that he was mourning and that he was fasting for three full weeks. And we see it wasn't a complete fast, but a partial fast. He wasn't eating or drinking any delicacies. He wasn't eating steak and drinking wine. He was kind of neglecting some of his personal hygiene of taking oil and lathering his skin. He was depriving himself of some of the things that bring us comfort and joy in our lives so that he can seek the Lord. Now, verse 2 doesn't tell us that he was praying, but in verse 12, we're going to see that this heavenly figure is a respond to Daniel's prayer. So here again, what do we see? Daniel is doing what? Daniel is praying. He's fasting. He's mourning. He's seeking the Lord, seeking the face of the Lord. And so another question we might be having is, if Daniel is doing this, Why? Why is Daniel fasting? Why is he mourning again? Well, Daniel doesn't tell us, but what does he tell us in verse 1? In verse 1, he gives us an historical marker. 
he says this is the third year of Cyrus. So what happened in the third year of Cyrus? We can go to, if you want to take notes, you can just write down the, um, the reference. We won't turn to Ezra. But in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, we find out it is the first year of King Cyrus. And he issued a decree that the Jews can come out of exile and return to Jerusalem and then start to rebuild the temple. Unfortunately, if you look at Ezra, not many of these Jews returned to Jerusalem and they started to build the temple and after laying the foundation, what happened? Immediately, they're faced with opposition. The opposition discourages them from building and the building of the temple stops. So now you can imagine, maybe Daniel received the report that the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, but the problem is the city is lying in ruins, and the people that came are so few and far between, and the building they started building, they laid the foundation, and now there's opposition, and there's no rebuilding of the temple. Daniel's heart was heavy, praying, seeking the Lord. Because the people of God now again are facing opposition. So he prays. And look at what happens in verse 4. Verse 4 says this. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Euphus around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them, and they ran and hid. I was left alone looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me. My face grew deathly pale and I was powerless. I heard the words he said and when I heard them, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And so a natural question after reading the text is what? Who is this heavenly figure? Now, we don't know 100%. Some believe, and many believe, this is a vision of an angelic being. It's just simply an angel. Some believe that it is a Christophany. What is a Christophany? A Christophany is the appearance of Jesus before he took on flesh. That's the simplest explanation. So anytime in the Old Testament when you read about the angel of the Lord, they believe that is a Christophany, that is Jesus appearing before he took on flesh. Because one of the things we have to understand is Jesus has always existed and he was always fully God, but he was not always fully man. He became fully man at the incarnation, the infleshing when he took on flesh. And so Jesus, fully God, not always fully man, became fully man, and after his resurrection exaltation, now he remains fully God and fully man. But the Christophany is Jesus being fully God and yet before the incarnation. Everybody understands that? So those are two options, an angel or a Christophany. So I have to make a decision, okay? My decision is, I think it's a Christophany, and here's why I, I, I say that. Because the description of this heavenly figure 
is very similar to the description that John gives us in Revelation chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, keep your spot in Daniel 10, but let's go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. Everybody's got it? Revelation 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. It says this. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet was like, like fine bronze as it's fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. Now, it's not going to be identical because you have two people trying to describe the same thing. And when you have two people describing the same thing, it's not going to be exactly, but there's going to be a lot of similarities. So let me show you the similarities. Both in Daniel and John describes one like the son of man or like a human. He is dressed in robes. He's dressed in white robes. That symbolizes, in a sense, priestly garments. Both describe having a gold belt or a gold sash that symbolizes kingly apparel. Both have blazing eyes, have bronze skin, and their words, one says, is like a cascading waters. The other one sounds like a multitude. In other words, what that's symbolizing is a supernatural trait. So you see the similarities here, but then we also find out that when Daniel sees this vision, Daniel was not alone. They're his buddies with him. And even though they did not see the vision, something happened that terrified them so much that they're experiencing something supernatural that they immediately ran and hid. Now, where else in Scripture do we see somebody experience Jesus and his companions not, but they know something crazy is going on? Remember Saul on his way to Damascus in Acts chapter 9? He sees a great light and hears a great voice, and his companions see something, but they don't hear anything. And what do they do? They hid. And interesting enough, who was it that appeared to Saul? It was Jesus. Another reason is as soon as Daniel uh, 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 encountered this heavenly figure, the pre-incarnate Christ, and as soon as he spoke, what did Daniel do? He lost his strength. He was filled with fear, and he fell into a deep sleep. That's just a nice way of saying, I was so terrified that I dropped dead. Now, where else do we read about that? Let's go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. What happens to John when he saw the vision? When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and he said to me, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. So here what we see 
both Daniel and John, who sees this vision of the powerful, glorious Son of God. And what's their response? They lost strength. They dropped dead. Both were overwhelmed. Both were undone. Both were wiped out. See, I I think a real quick, Jesus is so powerful and so glorious that the bravest, the strongest of men who stand in his presence drops dead. Ligon Duncan says this in the Bible, intimacy with God always leaves a mark. And this is what we see Daniel experiencing. Let's keep reading in Daniel and let's see uh, more about this heavenly figure and the interaction between Daniel and the heavenly figure. Look, look, Look at verse 10. Suddenly, a hand touched me and set me shaking on my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. Understand the words that I'm saying to you. Stand on your feet, for I have been sent to you. And after he said this to me, I stood trembling. Now again, some believe, we have so many options here, and I don't want to confuse you with all the options. Some believe that, yeah, okay, if this heavenly figure is the pre-incarnate Christ, then some believe the hand that is touching Daniel is not the pre-incarnate Christ, but rather an angel of the Lord. And again, we have to make a decision. Who is the hand that touched Daniel? And I'm going to fall again. If I'm going to give, if I'm going to make a mistake in my interpretation of Scripture, which I'm going to make a mistake, here's where I'm going to make a mistake at. I'm always going to give Christ too much credit. I'm always going to read too much Christ in the text. Uh, and so even though I could be wrong, I do believe this is still the pre-incarnate Christ. This is still the heavenly figure that is touching him. Because again, we looked at Revelation 1 verse 17. After John saw the vision of Jesus in his exalted state, John, what happened to John? He dropped down dead. What did Jesus do? Jesus touched him. Jesus gave him a word of reassurance. And what's happening here in our text? The hand touches him. And that very same hand speaks a word of reassurance. Daniel, you who are treasured by God. You know what that means? Daniel, God loves you. You don't have to be afraid. God loves you. And the heavenly figure touches him. And Daniel says, I'm kind of regaining my strength a little bit. I'm not dead anymore, but I am standing and my knees are shaking. And as Daniel's still standing, look, look at verse 12. He says this, the heavenly figure says, don't be afraid, Daniel. He said to me, from the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. I've come because of your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help, to help me after I've been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the last days. For the vision refers to those days. Now notice... 
that the heavenly figure, why did the heavenly figure come? It is a response to Daniel's persistence prayer. In other words, not only did the Lord hear Daniel's prayer, but the Lord answered Daniel's prayer, responded to Daniel's prayer by sending this heavenly figure. And if this heavenly figure is the pre-incarnate Christ, we can in a sense say this pre-incarnate Christ is the answer to Daniel's prayer. And we see that this is a response of Daniel's prayer, but this response was delayed. Now, this is where some people say, looking at verses 12 to verse 14, this cannot be the pre-incarnate Christ because if Christ is so glorious and so powerful, why will he be held up by three, three uh, weeks fighting against the prince of Asia? Why did uh, Persia, why did he have to call Michael in, in to help him? And there's all these kind of questions. And honestly, questions I can't really answer because the text doesn't really Tell us. But what's going on here? As the Lord is, God is responding to Daniel's prayer, we see there's some spiritual engagement that is taking place. Spiritual forces are at work. Angels fighting against demonic forces that somehow are representing kingdoms and empires. And there's spiritual opposition that is going on that's, in a sense, trying to prevent God's plan from being fulfilled. But one of the things we have to do here, and here's what's really helpful for you. If there's parts of Scripture that you do not understand, it is always best to look at the whole counsel of God's Word, to always compare Scripture with Scripture. Because as we look at verses 12 to verses 14, we really see the spiritual battle going on. But we also have to understand, as we look at the entire Bible, is Satan a match for God? No, it's not. But when we just look at verses 12 to 14, we almost can think, oh no, this is a a hefty battle going on that angels actually have to call for help for one another. But if we look at the whole scripture, what do we see like? Saying it's no match for the Lord, which means what's being said in a sense and some of the details that's not given to us, we shouldn't add those details to kind of make sense of it, but rather we should look at the whole scripture. So as we see in verses 12 to verses 14, what we see is this heavenly figure reports that Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help in this opposition so that he could go to Daniel and so that Daniel could understand this vision of what will happen in the future. And so I do think in this text, I think there's three dangers and three traps that we should not fall into. The first trap is this. I don't think we should read this text and see dualism going on. What's dualism? Dualism is this this nail-biting fight between good and evil going on, and good eventually will prevail over evil because they throw this Hail Mary, this last little bit of glimmer of hope that comes, and good prevails over evil, but really by a slither. That is not what's going on in our text because the Bible doesn't teach that. For example... In the book of Job, we, we read about Satan reporting to God. Satan, in a sense, obeys God's commands because he has no choice. When demon cast out, uh, when Jesus, not demon cast out, when Jesus casted out demons, did they obey him? Did they submit to him? Yes. So the gospel shows us how Jesus has authority over demonic forces. 
in the book of Revelation when this great war is taking place? Like it seems like all the attention is given to all the efforts and all the rage of all the nations, all the modern forces gather to do battle against God and you know how the war ends? With the word. He speaks and it's over. So in light of the whole counsel of scripture, let's not read in this dualistic battle that is going on. But is a battle going on? Yes. Which means now the second danger that we need to watch out for, this text does seem to imply uh, that empires have demonic forces and there's demonic forces behind it. But one of the dangers is that we become so preoccupied by demonic forces that we see all governments and institutions and organizations as demonic and as evil. Does the Bible teach that? No. Paul actually says in Romans 13, submit to governing authorities because who instituted governing authorities? God. So we can't become so preoccupied by demonic forces saying everything is evil, but do they have demonic forces behind them? Yes. And then the third danger is now going to the opposite side. There's no such thing as demonic forces. There's no such thing as spiritual warfare going on. Let's just pretend that doesn't exist and let's just live our happy lives. No. So let's not fall into the trust. What do we see is clear in our text. Angels, demons exist. There is a conflict. There is a battle, a spiritual battle going on. It does seem in our text that's clear that there are demons and angels that are given geographical and governmental assignments. We read about the prince, the demonic force of the kingdom of Persia. Later on, we'll read it about the kingdom of Greece. And it does seem like Michael, the archangel, represents Israel and fighting for them. And it does seem clear in our text that these demonic forces are opposing God and his plan. How, why? The text doesn't tell us, but this is what we know is clear. I like what John Piper says. He says, I would conclude that there are high-ranking demonic powers over various regimes and dominions and governments and realms of the world, and that they work to create as much evil and corruption and spiritual darkness as they can. They strive to interrupt Christian mission and ministry as much as they can. There is a spiritual war going on. We'll talk more about it in our application. But look at what Daniel, what happened to Daniel when he hears that something is going to happen to his people in the future. Look, look at verse 15. While he was saying these words to me, I turned my face towards the ground and was speechless. Suddenly one with human likeness touched my lips. I opened my mouth and said to the one standing in front of me, my Lord, because of the vision and anguish overwhelms me and I am powerless. How can someone like me, your servant, speak with someone like you, my Lord? Now I have no strength and there is no breath in me. Daniel is speechless. 
He is so distressed by what he heard that he can't say anything. And it is only until this heavenly figure reaches out and touches his lips that now he can speak. Now, I know it's like we're reading the, as we're reading the text, we're like, oh, yeah, this is the heavenly figure. Well, maybe not. And now we get to the part of the text where I'm like, yeah, this is why I think this is the heavenly figure. Because notice how Daniel responds to this heavenly figure, this pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. He calls him Lord and servant. Now, again, you're like, well, that doesn't mean anything. And exactly, that doesn't mean anything. But where else have we read in Scripture where somebody experiences the angel of the Lord and responds in the same way? Joshua. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 14, Joshua calls the angel of the Lord, and he refers to him as Lord, which is a a, a sense of honoring, respect. But then he calls him his servant. Because we see the parallels, the similarities between how Daniel is responding to the angel of the Lord and how Joshua is responding to the angel of the Lord, it's none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God. And Daniel admits, I have no strength in me. I have no breath. He feels lifeless. And yet, the angel of the Lord touches him, gives him strength. But we're going to see he's going to touch him again. Look at verse 18 as we're almost done with the text and then we'll talk about application. Verse 18 says this, Then the one with the human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. He said, Don't be afraid. You who are treasured by God, peace to you. Be very strong. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. He said, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. However, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. Let's stop here and then we'll tackle the rest next week. I just love, it just hits me in this passage, just how this heavenly figure, the angel of the Lord, just constantly is touching Daniel strengthening Daniel, gives him words of assurance, gives him a word of a command. And the more he speaks to him, the more Daniel is strengthened. He touches him. He gives him the same word of assurance. Daniel, you're treasured by God. Daniel, you are loved by God. Daniel, you don't have to be afraid because God loves you. Peace be with you. Who said that? Somewhere else in the Bible. Didn't Jesus tell that to his disciples? And then he says, be very strong. Tells Daniel, be very strong. Why can Daniel be very strong? Because all of a sudden he's been able to gather his strength up and his courage up? No. He can be very strong. Why? Because of the pre-incarnate Christ. Because of this heavenly figure that's touching him, speaking words of assurance and comfort. And the more he speaks to him, the more it strengthens him. Where Daniel finally says, I have been strengthened. Now you can speak to me. 
And we see that Daniel was strengthened three times and he invites this heavenly figure to speak to him because he's received the spiritual energy necessary to receive and understand this message. And now we're going to see, or next week we're going to see how this heavenly figure reveals God's unwavering plan even in the midst of spiritual warfare. So you're going to come back next week to hear the word. Let's talk about application here. What's going on in the text? First of all, Daniel hears an unfavorable report regarding God's people facing opposition. What's Daniel doing? He's praying. He's mourning. He's fasting. He is seeking the Lord. And what does the Lord do? The Lord hears. The Lord responds by sending in a sense, his son, the pre-incarnate son of God, before he took on flesh, appeared before Daniel and overwhelmed Daniel. The very appearance of him overwhelmed Daniel, where Daniel dropped dead. And yet the son continually touched him, gave him words of assurance, gave him a word of a command, and strengthened him. And so we already said, like, in a sense, the answer to Daniel's prayer was Jesus. And I think we can apply that to our lives. Like, if you're taking this, the very first application we can see uh, from this text is that, in a sense, Jesus is the answer to our prayers. Like, like he is the answer to your prayer. He comes, and he overwhelms us with his power and his glory. He comes and he gives us a word of reassurance. The Lord loves you. Peace be with you. You don't have to be afraid. Be strong. Because the strength is in you? No, because the one who has made himself known to you is very strong. And he comes and he touches us and he gives us strength. And the reason why we don't have to be anxious about anything is why? Have you seen our king? Our king is so big that strong men drop dead. Our king is so big that he conquers armies with a word. That his very appearance make men drop dead. And yet, you would think, oh, that is a ruthless king. No, what kind of king is he? He comes to his children and he says, don't be afraid. I love you. My father loves you. Peace be with you. I give you strength. Now stand up and be strong because I am very strong. So how is Jesus the answer to our prayers? Struggling with anxiety? Struggling with fear? Struggling with the uncertainties as the nation seemed to rage and society is unraveling by the scenes? Trying to figure out, like, how in the world am I going to make this through the day? How in the world am I going to make it through this week? Jesus comes and overwhelms. He is all-powerful. And he reminds you that you belong to him. You are his and he is yours. So in a sense, he is the answer to all our prayers. And what he has done for us on the cross and what he's going to do for us 
in the future and finally destroying sin, Satan, and death and make all things new. The second application is when we look at this text, again, we see uh, more in this world that meets, there's more in the world that meets the eye. When we read about a glimpse of the spiritual warfare and the demonic forces and the angelic beings that's dueling it out behind the scenes. So if you're taking notes, we, we see there is a spiritual war going on around us right now. Even as I'm speaking, there is a spiritual war going on. And I think, and I'm glad we cannot see what's going on because we will be petrified. But there's a spiritual war going on. This is why Paul tells the church in Ephesus, he tells the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, he says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And as much as we don't like to talk about spiritual warfare, it is unavoidable because what does Paul tell us? Yo, you got to put on the armor. There's a war going on right now, and if you are not prepared for battle, if you don't have the right gear on it, you will be swept away. He says, so that, why do you put on the full armor of God, verse 11? So that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. I don't want to go on a rabbit trail or on a soapbox. I'm going to really fight hard against it. But here's what I want to do for us, like real quick here. Like when we think about spiritual warfare, when we think about the schemes of the devil and the deception that's going on, we're quick to think about the deception out there with, with governments and, and LGBTQ and these and that. Is there deception? Yes. But I'm not their pastor. I'm your pastor. I want to talk about some of the lies that we have a tendency to believe, the deception that is going on even among Christians today. Like, like, like one of the things I'm seeing in the church, not just our church, but the church, the evangelical church, is that we are fracturing and we are unraveling by the seams. Why? Because the devil is working and he is sowing these seeds of disunity. We have a tendency to draw our theological camps and we treat our brothers and sisters like enemies and heretics. Like we can't disagree charitably anymore. If you're not for me, if you don't agree with me with everything, then you are a heretic. So we call each other names. Like go, don't, don't go on YouTube. Don't even go on the internet anymore. Have you seen how brothers and sisters treat one another online and chat rooms and YouTubes? We literally have ministries designed to criticize pastors. And some of you are eating it up and you're being swept away by the deception and lies of Satan. And every time that you're buying into this and you're grumbling and you're complaining and you're not trusting your leaders that the Lord has established in you, it is sowing seeds of disunity and he is having a field day. Denominations are splitting up. It's because the enemy is just having a field day. What do you do? You need to put on the full armor of God. You need to resist the schemes of the devil who's trying to divide, who's trying to conquer. 
the lies that he's putting in your mind to believe. And that's for the church, but even for some of you individually, some of the lies that the devil is feeding you. God doesn't love you. No one cares about you. You're by your own. The church is not good for you. You need to maybe do your own little thing. Like Those are all lies. Because what is the enemy doing? He says, let me take you out. Let me isolate you. So that once you, I isolate you, I can destroy you. And now it's important for us as the church, not just for us part, but I'm talking about the global church to put some of our differences aside and hold true to the fundamentals of the faith. To say we can agree to disagree on some of these non-fundamental issues, but what we need to do is stand on the word of God, put on the full armor of God, be reminded of who we are in Christ. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of some of our differences of how we look at things and believe things or how things should be. But if we're constantly buying into the lies of the enemy and putting ourselves and our preferences aside, then it becomes all about us. And then we draw our many different camps. Put on the full armor of God so we may resist the schemes of the devil. And our only offensive weapon is what? The word. What should we all stand on? The word. And what we have to understand with the word, the word is not the full revelation of God, but the word is the sufficient revelation of God for salvation. Are there some things in the word that is clear? Yes. Are there some things in the word that is unclear? Yes. But what do we know about the word? It is sufficient for salvation to reveal salvation, to train and equip so that the man of God will be fully trained and equipped for all good works. This is what we stand on. This is how we fight the schemes of the devil. And here's the good news in our spiritual warfare. For some of us, we can get so scared about the schemes of of the devil, but, but here's the good news. We can stand, we can resist, we can fight knowing, as, as Paul says in Colossians, for God has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him that is Christ. Peter says, even though the devil may prowl around like a roaring lion seeking to devour God's image bearers. Paul says in Romans 6 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. No principality can withstand Christ's power or overthrow his throne. And that in this world, yes, you will have many troubles. But take heart for what? For he has overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. My charge to you as we get to the tables, do not buy in to the schemes of the evil one. When we find ourselves having a heart of grumbling and complaining and distrust, let's, let's, let's see, oh, there's some dangers going on here. Let's not buy into these lies, but let's remind ourselves of the truth. What do we know is true? Let us resist, let us stand firm, and let us fight side by side with the word of God. And let us look to Christ, for he is 
the one that Daniel dropped dead, that John dropped dead. He is our King and our Lord, and He is with us, and He is for us, and He stands beside us, and He has overcome so we can take heart. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that you hear our prayers and that you answer our prayers and that you have sent your Son who came as a humble servant but who is also a glorious and mighty King. And in our struggles of this world and all the difficulties that we're facing, and all the schemes of the devil trying to divide us, trying to sow disunity among us, feeding us with lies of insecurities, can you help us to stand firm? Can you help us to be reminded of who we are in you, Lord Jesus, and reminded for what you have done for us, that we are your children, your sons, and your daughters, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are co-heirs, and that you accepted us, not because of what we've done, but because what you've done, Lord Jesus, on our behalf. So, Lord, my prayer for us is help us to remain firm against the schemes of the evil one. Help us to remain firm in your word. Help us to remain firm as we're on our knees seeking your face, begging for your mercy and for your grace and for your strength and for your courage to strengthen us as we fight this war. Help us not to be swept away by every winds of doctrine. But has help us to lock arms in with one another, to fight for the unity of the faith, to consider our brother or sister more important, more worthy than us, to treat them with gentleness, kindness, and humility. Well, that's my prayer for us as a church, and help us to fix our eyes on you, knowing that you are the answer to all of our prayers, that you have come and that you've met us where we are. As we're praying, I just want to give you a time of reflection and meditation. What are some lies that the devil has been feeding you that you have believed? And what are some truth, biblical truth, that you can cling to in the midst of when you're faced with those lies? Are you daily putting on the full armor of God? Are you resisting the evil and the lies? Are you in the word? Are you in biblical community? Can you imagine as a soldier you are fighting in the field by your own? What's going to happen to you? You won't make it. 
you need to fight side by side with brothers and sisters. As you look at some of your problems in your life, some of the things that you're struggling with, do you see Jesus as the answer to your prayer? Do you see how Jesus meets you where you are? And if you don't ask, ask the Lord to make that known to you, to show you through his word how he meets you where you are, how he's the answer to all of your needs and all of your wants, that he satisfies, that he fulfills, that he makes new. As we get to the table, I'm just so overwhelmed by this heavenly figure that is so overwhelming in Daniel and um, in Revelation that both Daniel and John drops dead. And yet it is the same one who gave his body and shed his blood for us. That paid for us that made us new. And so when we come to this table, it helps us refocus. It helps us in the midst of all the lies and all the hustle and bustle and all the things and all the information. It helps us to say no. Look to Jesus who gave his body for you, who shed his blood for you that God has accepted you, that God loves you, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And what did he do for you? He took your sins and he paid for it in full on the cross by giving his body and shedding his blood and establish a new covenant that you can now have with God. And so when we distribute these elements and we, in a sense, receive these elements, it is a statement of faith saying, Jesus, thank you for your body that was given to me. Thank you for your blood that was shed for me. Help me to feast on you and draw strength on you, knowing that you have conquered, knowing that victory is yours and your victory now becomes my victory. I trust in you. I'm reminded that I'm in you. And so what that also means is if you do not receive Christ, if you do not believe in Christ, then don't take something that you don't believe in. Don't pretend to receive something that you don't understand. We don't want, you don't want to do that. We don't want you to do that. But then use this time as a time to maybe meditate, to reflect on your life. Like, who's the hero in my life? What's going on in my life? Will God accept me based on my performance? And the answer would be no, because you have good days and bad days. And unfortunately, just like me, we have more bad days than good days. Use that as a time to repent and to turn to the Lord.